Unity Committee and Rebels of Rhythm before you guys started. And I guess maybe a little bit on one side, but it wasn't necessarily totally an old school vibe. But you give yeah. most of the credit to that sound to Soup. Yeah, I'd say I'd say Soup was a big part of it. He had such a dominating, you know, voice. He was he was very heavily influenced by Cold Crush and, <laughs> you know, Kangol Kid and all these people. So, like, I, I think it just, it stood out. It stood out. And, like, yeah. as a producer, I got to honor that and shape beats around that style and yeah a lot of music is really for, for me anyway is just following music like i always say i, I haven't produced shit. i just kind of follow where music guides mm -hmm. me you know it says hey i want a b and c and i say okay cool i'll meet you over there you know yeah and i mean like i said you know that was one of the things that really it, it set you guys apart right away was the fucking sound nobody sounded like that at the time there was i can't think of a, a group that was even that big yeah uh, you know four four rappers and two djs at that time you know yeah and i remember i don't know if you remember this but i think you either came to my house at the time i was living in alameda and it was a right around the time that we were just talking about a little bit earlier when you know i think the yellow label had right. just had just come out the yellow label jurassic 5 12 inch right? right and you came to my house and and quantum was pretty much in full swing at that time you know we're talking like the 90s right? and you and i talked and i was like what do you think man is this something that you would be down for would you be down to come to quantum you know and it, this was at, at a time oh. Do you remember this conversation? I, I don't, but you know what? Uh, I'm like literally the opposite of Cut. Like he's a steel trap. He'll remember every single thing that's ever happened right. chronologically from the day he was born till present. I'm really bad, man. Like, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I need to hang out with him more, basically. But no, I don't remember that. But that's an interesting conversation. Shit. I I think it's because we had we had just we played a, a Latirix show at the Justice League. Oh God, yeah, I remember that. Do you remember that gig? And you yeah, guys, you you guys opened for Latirix, which is laughable now at this point. You know what I mean? But at that at that time, you like opened for Latirix. You drove up to play. This is kind of illustrating where we were. You know, <laughs> oh, shit. you drove up to that gig, and I think you either left the very night of, or the uh -huh. after, or you came home. It was around that time period. And you were like, you came to my house and we were talking about, you know, I said, listen, man, we would love to sign you guys, you know, whatever you want to do. I, I remember this pretty clearly. And I got the impression that Newmark is, is like, he's kind of like the business head of Jurassic Five. I mean, at, at that point, at that point, I, I was carrying the burden of the business on my back just because I was trying to find a home for J5. Yeah. And, and, and distribution that would reach globally into a market that would appreciate us yes 
And so I, my gears were always kind of spinning. Um, and I wanted to do that first kind of like leap into the industry and then wash my hands of it. Like get us, get the J5 airplane off the ground. Yeah. Business wise, so to speak. Yeah. And just get back to making bees, get back to production, get back to DJing, get back to learning, really. More than anything else is learning, just learning, learning, learning. Yeah. And I knew I had that burden on my shoulders. And so um, it wasn't until Played Against Sam came along that I was like, this is this feels like the right fit. And there was enough money there for us to make it through a, a summer and some change. Right. <laughs> yeah. You, you also had a job and yeah. you were working at was it correct Records? yeah well i was i was studying to be an x-ray tech and then uh i dropped out of school about six months before i was supposed to graduate and then j5 started getting momentum and then i was working at an independent record label called correct records where i tried to sign kanye west and i got denied that was 96 this was before rock well well before rockefeller for a and r at correct I was I was a lot of things that correct. I was <laughs> college promotion, janitor, A&R, everything, you name it. Uh, again, another situation where I was trying to help, not help out, but I was trying to get something off of the ground and right. get it really bubbling. And so I signed an artist named Grav, and Grav ended up using Kanye for half of his album. And um, I then, in turn, tried to get Grav over to Correct Records, and then um, it just didn't work, and then the label kind of imploded and um i guess the rest is history or not <laughs> well, and, and just to give people context i mean that was like the independent label heyday you know what i mean yeah yeah the, the indie hip-hop underground hip-hop quote-unquote backer backpacker heyday yeah so let me ask this so then you guys do the 12 inch on blunt right that's done mm -hmm. how what was the response like and where did that lead to uh, I always thought it was lukewarm. I always thought like a, uh, a lot of the things that J5 did was lukewarm and that's what made us really push harder. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned well-oiled machine. That's what really made us go, okay, man, we're, we got to up the fucking ante and, and just stand out some way. And it, it ended up um, being that all our love was poured into our stage show. And then um, yeah. as time went on, it, it kind of went back into the records again, you know, into, into creating in the studio. But, um, yeah, I mean, I personally thought it was lukewarm, but it was just it was a good feeling for all all of us to be like, oh, okay, this is what it this is what it's like to get a little bit of buzz, you know. Right. But we all had very high hopes. Even by the time we disbanded on the feedback album, we wanted way more for the brand. We knew we had way more gusto. Mm -hmm. We had, I mean, the, that group had way, way, way more fucking gusto and ideas that were just insurmountable. I mean the creativity just from cut and charlie and and um and soup alone or just yes not even putting myself in the mix like some of the ideas i was like yes yes let's do that and there was a lot of bad ideas too i mean that's what that's what it's about you know when you create and you falling on our face a lot really helped us out tremendously man we got kicked in our teeth so much man it was just like it was just good for us though you know and i kept telling the group like hey it's okay if we argue, as long as we don't like name call and you know fight right. and whatever. Let's let's argue it out. Let's get it out. Let's iron the shit out and just do something dope. You know, C contribute. Okay, so I mean, I, I I'm assuming that you're 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 talking about the days also in between Blunt and Interscope. You know, I mean, you're, mm -hmm. you're quote unquote paying dues. Yeah. 
what was the turning point from going from this little independent 12 inch that was an underground hit on the west coast yeah to suddenly being considered as a signee at one of the biggest major labels in the world the, the, the turning point was the uk embracing us okay again in my humble opinion you know you probably talk to each member of the group and they'll have a different you know good life and everything but for me it was the uk embraced us before los angeles did mm. and that's how it's going to always be in my brain <laughs> the first time we played the uk we were just like oh cool we got a show it's good to have a show and we tried to like leave the stage after our performance and go out into the crowd just to kind of like i guess mingle and yeah. just like you know see what's up and we couldn't open the door to go to front of house because they were pushing the door in and I was like, what the fuck? Like, we we had we were oblivious. Yeah. So there was that performance, and then there was one a little bit later on where Charlie couldn't make it. He was with Ozo, and yeah. we played in front of 20,000 people. We had no clue. We told our manager, Dan, hey, we're on the wrong stage. <laughs> Seriously, no joke. You know, like, ask any of the guys, like, hey, Dan, we're on the wrong fucking stage, B. You know, I think we're in, I don't know, remember, we were fucking, we're, I think we are in Switzerland or some shit. It was some big festival. They all blend together in my brain um yeah but i was setting up the turntables and everything i was like hey i said dan you know i went back there and me and super like this is we're on the wrong stage bro like what are you doing b we're like we're supposed to be on some other small stage or some shit he's like nah this is they're there to see you and we're that's we're like oh shit what festival was this do you remember i think it, I think it was called like edding or something not reading but it was like a, it was one of those smaller ass cut he'll know everything from when he was born yeah um yeah but it was a good it was a good festival it was obviously amazing and it just blew our fucking minds that we were able to play for people who really appreciated what we were doing you know yeah. so then how did, but then walk me through this a little bit more how does that lead to interest from interscope i think we got up to about 150,000 records sold independently or something like that Crazy. and you know numbers numbers are numbers and we were being courted by other labels at the time and who Columbia taking taking us around EMI and all all the all the various people Interscope was the only label that actually promised what they offered us you know at our dinners on paper ah uh. and we we're like okay let's just fuck all the bullshit let's just we were on some like we don't have time for this we need to prep a new show we need to like we need to be artists so like all these guys lied so they're gone yeah and, and Soup had prior experience to working at Interscope and working at a, a litany of record labels. So that helped too. So I was always the one pushing, well, let's never sign. Let's sell this as a label. Let's sell J5 as a, yeah. as a, as a record label. And the guys weren't really up for it, you know? Yeah. I knew we could get much more and all that, but I knew it would have been too big of a hurdle at that time. Now yeah. we're talking like 98 going into 99 now. So, I mean... And, and and that's one of the things that I just knowing you guys and knowing things behind the scenes, you know, knowing you, most of you pretty well individually. It seems like one of the things and this is this is a uh, this is a, a challenge with any group with a lot of members. Oh, yeah. Balancing agendas, you know, yeah. before you even balance the artistic ego the personal ego, the schedules, the agendas is tough. It's yeah. really hard. People don't realize how much effort actually goes into just managing 
yourselves internally, you know, because I also know at this point, right, Cut and Tuna are part of a different group. Yeah. They're both part of Ozo Motley. Yeah. You're still DJing on your own, right? Everybody's got familial obligations. We're young at that time, but people have children and they have families and all that kind of stuff. That's right. There's always some sort of negotiation there on how to move forward, right? Because maybe you want to start a label, but these guys have other considerations. Yeah. These other guys maybe have different options because they're yep. in a group. How do you manage that successfully? Well, you know, I- I'm sure you remember being in your 20s, Tom. Like, you see a lot of groups around you falling on their face, like, and never returning. Yeah. And then you're also dealing with your 20-year-old, 24-year-old ego as yeah. a man. Yeah. You know, which uh, I had to check my fucking ego several times. Yeah. And um, and being checked from the other group members and other group members checking each other. Yeah. So there's a lot of, it, man, it really all keeps coming back down to learning, man. It was just like, oh, I can't do X, Y, and Z. I kind of had it figured that we would do X, Y, and Z, but... Yeah. That ain't the case when you have this much energy in the room. Yeah. And so you just kind of sit back and between learning from your brothers and learning from the road, different uh, ethnicities and different cultures and cities and countries, you're like, wow, man, Earth is pretty fucking big. <laughs> and there's a lot like that you think that you take for granted. You know, there's things in my mind at 24, Tom, that I was like, Oh, we're just gonna do this, this, and this. That's the logical move. Right. And the group would be like, "Nah, B. Hell no. Yeah. What the yeah. fuck are you talking about? New? We're not gonna keep yeah. it real forever and do a label. Like, fuck out of here. You know? So and then, I was like, Oh, okay. So then, ultimately, how does a decision like that get made? Majority rules for the most part in our group. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But that's basically what it comes down to. At the yeah. end. Yeah. Okay. So, you get signed to Interscope. Yeah. Right? That what year was that? Would you say ninety nine? I believe it was ninety eight, ninety nine. Ninety nine. Who was yeah. your at Interscope? Was it Tom Wally? Was was your Interscope at that time? Yeah, Tom Wally signed us and then left shortly thereafter. So okay, that presented a whole nother set of obstacles for the group as well. So then once once you get signed, and this was a huge fucking deal. For all of us in sort of that indie West Coast hip hop community, you know, who had also kind of traveled the same path, like probably got a little more notoriety overseas first. Yeah. This was a monumental, huge, big deal, you know, to kind of see one of our own get into this position. Because, you know, back in the day, it was the end all be alls to get signed to a major label. You know what I mean? So. Man, this is like really cool to hear actually, Tom, because um, this is almost exactly verbatim what I told Fat Lip and Slim Kid Trey when I heard them on Power 106 here in LA mm. and they got signed. Mm-hmm. So this is like a really like, you got me kind of bugging right now. I'm like, that's, that's really kind of cool to hear, man, because, you know, as an artist, you're always looking to somebody else. Yeah. You know, so that's really cool to hear. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it was it was a big deal for us, yeah. you know, because the community at that time, as you know, was extremely strong. The underground sort of hip hop, everybody pretty much knew everybody. Everybody had the same fans. Basically, yeah. what was going through your mind then once you get signed and you start going into this first album? For me personally, I was a fish out of water. I 
I don't feel like I came like, you know, it's hard to talk about this stuff without giving your personal two cents, right? So how it affected you emotionally. So for me, like, I don't really think I found myself production wise in that album in the quality control album. Right. Um, uh, although I have, I have had other people disagree. I'm like, I wasn't comfortable yet. Um, it wasn't until power on numbers where I got comfortable, but the feeling to kind of answer your question for me was tense. Yeah. Okay. Because we're going from, Hey, we have all the time in the world to record on this eight track at cuts house. Right. Sure. Show up two hours late soup. Who gives a fuck? Yeah. <laughs> no problem. We're 24. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Fast forward to 27, 28. And you're like, okay, we got this budget money and this rehearsal studio time. I mean, excuse me, this, this tracking studio time. Yeah. It becomes a little bit of a different story. So it's kind of hard not to think about money in the red fucking light blinking. Time out. What did Jurassic 5 get signed for in that first album? What songs got them signed? Got what them signed? money did you guys get signed for? At oh, that? I think it was 350 or something like that. Okay, so that yeah. was higher than the going rate, basically, right? We, I, I, I thought we had a great attorney. Lisa Sikransky was doing her job, in my humble opinion, man. She she was good. I'm looking at the contract. I had to look at the contract a few days ago. I'm like, it's a good contract, man. She did her thing. Yes. Um, I think it was around there, somewhere yeah. around there. Because uh, I, I know that the contracts at that time, you know, if if rumors were true, you know, the contracts at that time, the going rate for a first time, First time signee was about two fifty, right? Yeah, I think we started somewhere around there too. Yeah, so yeah. Yeah. so that's a testament to how much buzz and track record that you guys are that had at that point, you know? Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't know. I don't. Th at that point, I had already washed my hands, Tom. I was like, I'm no longer responsible for playing against Sam, and the groups don't. The group doesn't need to yell at me. How come they didn't do this and that? I'm like, nope. We're in the door. Bye bye. <laughs> Meet Danny. I'm an artist, <laughs> Meet man. our manager, Danny. Right. Sure. <laughs> I yeah. was ghost. I was like, man, this, 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 that's a hard man. job, man. Look, yeah. any anybody who manages, like, I've been mad at managers left and right. Yeah. And at the end of the day, I just go, that's the toughest job in the industry. It I just want to do it. Yeah. You know? So the album comes out. I mean, it was a fuck. I mean, from, from our perspective, it was an instant success. I mean, it was a great album. A great album. I mean, it, it's universally regarded as a classic, you know, within that genre, within that subgenre. Everybody, I don't know a single... Pro I mean, you guys, I mean, I'm sure you got started to get this if you didn't already. But I don't even like hip-hop, but I like y'all. You know what I mean? Like yeah. that camp, you know what I mean? And once that camp gets on board, sky's the fucking limit, you know what I mean? And um, so what happens when it drops? I think we kind of felt decent about it, but I feel like we also went on some weird tours too. I, I, I didn't agree with the tours at all, but it yeah. also helped us get into another lane. Like we went on tour with Fiona Apple and we did the warp tour and did some, some strange tours in my opinion. But I think that's only because that that's the landscape that we were dealt. And yeah. so, um, yeah, man, I don't know. I, it, it was cool. I mean, Again, we were still learning. We were still like getting our, you know, our teeth, you know, sunken into the business, and we're learning what it's like to like play 
when Green Day is supposed to be on the slot and then they switch us with Green Day and then the crowd throws shit at us the whole time. Like we're learning like how to get our ass kicked on the road and we were touring like a rock band. Like we weren't touring like the average hip hop group at that time. Yeah. Um, I mean, it was like three months and some change of steady, like most of the days out of the week filled shows at that point. So at that point we were becoming very well oiled. We were like, okay, when something skipped, you almost didn't even notice it. Like when a record skipped pre Serato, pre digital era, right? Like you almost didn't even notice it with us. It, it, it was getting to that point where we were just like, okay, skipped, huh? This is fun. This will add a little brightness to our day, Duke. You know, I call cut Duke and get on the SP and then we start playing, you know, like it just, we were in that mode, you know, but yeah, I mean, I, again, I, I feel like it was, yeah, it was cool. It was lukewarm. It was, it was cool. I was proud of the work. I did my best. I know cut did his best. How could you feel like the reception was lukewarm? How could you feel like that? Because you guys went from playing clubs to suddenly super huge festivals. Yeah. Where where no hip hop group had ever gone before, right? Ultimately, regardless of, of sort of sales or genre. You knew you had to know that the support from the community was fucking huge. You yeah, had no I'm not I definitely would never throw that away. I think it's kind of like the best way of putting it is like you ever sit down and make a beat and then you're like, I can make a way better beat than this. Mm. It was that for me, for me. And and I think the group always wanted more. Um, I, I would I would venture to say they felt the same way, but I'm not going to go that far. But yeah. I know when you know, you know, you know. In, in retrospect, do you feel like your ambitions were so high and because I've heard you say you said this at the top of the conversation is that everybody felt like sky was the limit for this group, right? Yeah. In retrospect, do you feel like your ambitions were so high that you weren't able to smell the roses at that moment? Or was it really falling short of your expectations? No, no, we celebrated. We, we enjoyed ourselves. I don't want to I don't want to get it uh, misconstrued. We definitely understood that this is very tough to do. And we with the majority of the group being from the good life, they knew what it was like to really come out hot and then struggle yeah so we knew that life don't owe us shit right. and that we got a little bit of buzz but not to fucking drink our own fucking kool-aid right and sip our own shit because it ain't that kind of party and the world don't owe us nothing yeah so we, we knew we knew but we enjoyed it don't get me wrong but we just like we can do better there's there's a way to do better it's technology driven it's people around us driven it's label driven it's us it's time it's time management so but yeah. the music but the music the album i mean quality control like i said i mean it's a fucking classic you know and and i guess what i'm hearing here and, and it's kind of hard to have created the product yeah and and to think of it in a way that a listener or a fan would, you know, necessarily, because you you have your agenda, you have the path that you're on, and I'm just a listener. Right. I get to, these songs are going to intermingle with my life in the way that, that it does, you know? Yeah. So I, I guess I can understand that, but as you're moving forward from this album and you're going into the next album, what are the new what's the new set of challenges that you have as a band you know topping what we just did obviously but contributing again just going back to like 
Fucking Josh says it perfectly, man, in the in the Scratch documentary, where he's like, you don't want to like just be another record in the pile of someone's garage and someone's uh, collection. You want to actually contribute some art. And I think we always kind of felt like, you know, if we're not actually making the culture of hip hop a little bit stronger, then what are we exactly doing? Because yeah. there's 9,000 motherfuckers right behind us online, like, hurry up, J5, hurry up. It's our turn. Hey, are you out of the bathroom stall yet? Okay. Get out of there, buddy. You know? You know, that's a great answer, I guess. <laughs> but, but what I'm asking you, is after this album is done specifically what are you guys thinking now are you saying to yourselves we need to get on bigger tours we need to make different kinds of songs we need to be doing what we're doing um there was a lot of talk about frequency low end okay um some bottom end there was a lot of talk about why is it is it our fault that more black audience members aren't following our music Mm. or is it the sign of the times and i'll be like well look at the chronic 2001 tour it was look at the tape it's mm. a lot of asians latins and whites in the audience like it it ain't the dev jam tour i went to that tour <laughs> <laughs> I, I was there here at the at the at the um at uh in, in griffith park when run dmc played here you know with epmd and is all mostly black folks in the audience right and so this the times were changing and most of the group is from the hood in j5 and so there's a lot of talk about like are we doing something that we should you know are we doing something wrong should, you know why aren't black folks showing up you know right and you know there's a lot of like well it doesn't matter you don't pick your audience just just do you you know just do what you do best and so to answer your question very candidly that was one of the things to that point, not to cut you off, to that point, I've had this conversation with Tuna as well, yeah. you know, and he said that that used to come up within the group quite a bit. Yeah. And it's come up within Quantum as well. Yeah. I think yeah. any underground hip hop group, it's come up as well. And, and I think Tuna said something that was very poignant and it stayed with me this day. He says, you don't choose your fans. Your that's fans right. choose you. That's, that's pretty much what I just said. It's just like, just be happy that they show up. Yeah. Okay. If you find somebody, it's it's a good thing. Yeah. There's a lot of people that go through life they don't even find love, man. So like, <laughs> right. you know, yeah. straight up, like it's it's a good thing to like have somebody who appreciates what you do, and is willing to show up. You know, and I think a lot of artists can learn from that, man. It's a, there's a lot of shifting that goes on on album number two and three, um, and most bands, let's be honest, most bands don't make it to three, or where yeah. you like all three. Yeah. So. So what, so what were some of those shifts going into album two? A different engineer, some outside production, but not as much as what was initially talked about. That didn't show up until feedback. Was the outside production, was that, a, was that the band's idea? Was that the label's idea? Were the, the outside collaborations? Mostly the band's idea. Well, mostly the MC's idea. I, I, I always felt like Cut and I could handle it. Yeah. But, um, hey, look, you know you gotta like everybody has to feel like they're comfortable in that seat so yeah i i mean i don't know i'm, I'm the type of guy that's just not like i don't really back down to any like battle or obstacle so i just felt like yeah okay let's let's do this yeah let's let's, let's, let's try to do a little bit of a ship to make it our own you know let's let's make it our own low end theory or whatever the fuck you want to call it you know and go into that record with a different set of lenses and see what it is um but 
yeah yeah i mean that's i don't i don't know much more to say about that topic <laughs> and and that was the album with big daddy kane yeah right and that's my that's my favorite album personally um but most people would disagree but that 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 was the album that i also fell into my own i had my own studio at my crib i had my own monitors i didn't go racing back and forth with my dad listening to how it sounded at the studio compared to my lab right. because i'm used to my speakers and not the speakers at the studio and all that shit. i was like fuck this i'm making what's golden and that's where I just fell into my shit. And I was just like, I, I can just do the backstroke in this shit. I, I was like, it was second nature for me. Yeah. I felt comfortable. Yes. Uh, I bought my first home. I had my studio in it. I was like, this is, right. this was it. Like, you know, if I can't do it now, I, I should just fucking leave, you know? So was this the album where you felt like you personally hit your stride? As yeah. A okay. Yeah. And, and I also, I also suggested strides for a cut. Like I was like, What's up with that day at the races beat? That was almost going to be on the fucking EP. Ah. And it didn't make the EP. I'm like, yo, bring that shit back, yo. I, I remember very clearly, like, telling him, like, that is the fucking truth. And that, that's still one of the best fucking songs on that album. Yes. Um, and and in this moment, is the label still as supportive as they were on the first album? I mean, are they... You know, I wouldn't attribute the adjective supportive when it comes to Interscope Records, I would say cooperative. Okay. And, and, the, and the fact that we negotiated a deal that they couldn't breach, and, and that's that we had creative control, and they knew that our A&R had already left Tom Wally. He was, you know, co-CEO, and he left. So Tom Wally was like, I don't I don't understand this group. I have 50 Cent, I have Eminem, I have Dre. What am, yeah. what am, I, what am I listening to? Right. So it was, a, it was a learning process for him and the Black Radio Department there. You know, so they're like, obviously, they want to get some records played. And so we were um, the misfits, I'd say, for the most part. But it didn't bother us, man. Like, I mean, we were just like, look, the line is wrapped around the block at the shows. We're making a living. We're, we're doing music we stand behind. And that's, I mean, that's all. We just we're doing the best we could. Right. And, and I mean, uh, the thing that people need to understand is that that time period for major labels, the only metrics that mattered were sales and radio play. You know what I mean? Pretty much, man. That's pretty much it. And I mean, I remember albums going gold. Yeah. And labels feeling like it was a fucking flop. Yeah. Or a failure. That was the climate that we were in back yeah. then. Yeah. And I remember it being particularly difficult for groups like us, you know, independent groups that had to claw, scratch, beg, steal to yeah. make of that label the level where we would get on a label yeah and then you have this whole other fight after that where you're not a radio band you're not a you're not a triple platinum style band right. not personally but you, you know what i'm saying yeah don't get me wrong either there were some some real like j5 advocates over at interscope don't get me wrong there were, there were some people really pulled for us that really understood it but it was a challenge it was a challenge that you guys navigated successfully you know, I mean, it, when we go back and we talk about all our favorite underground hip hop groups from the 90s and 2000s, very few, like you said, went on to make more than one or two albums on, yeah. on a major label for yeah. those reasons, I would assume, you know. Yeah, yeah. it's not easy. <laughs> What's that? It's not easy. No. I mean, that. I mean, I think, you know, looking back, like, you know, the best thing to do when you're on a major label or you're you have that kind of pressure on your shoulders is to 
never stop creating just continue to create even for, just, just create for the sake of creating you know you're yeah. just gonna create for the sake of like feeling and touching you know yeah and thank god i was doing some of that then you know because prior to that on quality control i would make something for the album oh i make something because they have this kind of lyric they were they wanted this kind of um story or whatever yeah but just feeling and touching music and playing on the keys playing with the drum machine and just just to touch it and feel it is um paramount when you're in that stage because you want to keep your mind and your gear and your creativity constantly moving and flowing it's you're exercising you're at the gym every day you know what yeah. i mean i remember reading an interview with 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 tribe called quest and mm -hmm. kind of towards the the love movement you know when it was pretty much the beginning of the end as far as the fans were concerned as far as as far as fans were aware of it was you know coming to the end of a tribe called quest and yeah you know, they would speak relatively candidly about how difficult it was, you know, their problems with Jive at the time, you know what I mean? Right. And I just remember Shahid kept saying over and over again, you just have to really love music. You have to really love music. That's yeah. what you threw. You have to really love music. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, to that point, for me, it just never crossed my mind because I, I grew up playing drums at the age of seven and I just, look, it's the only thing I really know. Yeah, I had I had a backup plan of working at as an x-ray tech and all that stuff, but that shit wasn't gonna crack. Right. And, you know, I've done day jobs like working at Fat Beats and working at Correct Records and stuff like that, but that, that wasn't my calling and it wasn't until I put all my eggs in one basket that things kind of catapulted to the next level, which is where my energy needed to be. Yeah, so, Obviously, you know, you do the first album. The first album was a success by all my personal metrics. How many copies did that end up selling? I'm just curious. I, I don't know if I've ever... Body control went gold in the end. That's amazing. Yeah. Again, that's probably a first, you know, because I'm just trying to think of my peer group right now, our peer group. Yeah. I don't know anybody else has done that off the top that i can think of our like the, sort of the west coast underground alumni i mean that's a huge achievement right so now you're in the second album how was that responded to did you feel like you got the same level of enthusiasm worldwide on it was a, it was a slower burn okay but there was way more heat on there man like there well no for me there was there was heat on there like there's things that are, that are happening on power numbers that just didn't happen on quality control and vice versa but what you, what there was there i just when i think of power numbers i smile man i was like man that was that was cool yeah that was really fucking cool you know but the the <laughs> it's interesting man because quality control really was the sign of the times like you put out quality you become mysterious you disappear for a year or two and you make your next album yeah that whole a uh, uh, creative dynamic shifted by the time power numbers came out it became about content and putting things out regularly and quickly right. Right. and there was a lot of push and pull in the group for that too and to akil's credit he was like we need to do more we need to do more we need to put out more and he was absolutely right yeah. he was absolutely right and so i kind of come from that school as ak with that D actually delivering is another story right so you know but the the times have changed. People were putting out more frequent releases. Yes. 
And then don't even get me started on social media because social media, you're just on a drip feed. So didn't exist. Yeah, yeah, we were headed towards that direction before even really knowing it. And you know, the internet was there, you know, but it was that, that drip feed giving people crumbs, not giving away the whole piece of the puzzle yeah. was, that was already starting to happen. Right. And then Napster hit and it shattered into millions of little Napsters and it was pretty much game over. Yeah. And that was the end of that second album, which was Power Number. So we got in right when that window was shutting and it was like, we were upset. We sold 75,000 um, units in one week. We're like, oh, what the fuck? Like shit, if I sold 75,000 units of anything right now, I'd go down the street running around naked like, fuck yeah, I did it. <laughs> right. <laughs> totally. Yeah. You know? Okay, so, I mean, this is interesting because clearly the times were shifting at that moment, right? Very quickly. Very quickly. Yeah. At the speed of the internet, basically. Yeah. You know, That's right. figuratively and literally. I mean, the internet pretty much changed everything and it wasn't yeah. about, you know, people don't understand. Social media did not really exist at that time. Was my case even around at that time? Look, look, Tom, we all got bitch slapped. Right. Like, like labels the hardest. The labels got bitch slapped the hardest. And where they fucked up is not embracing the technology. Yeah. That's where they did the misstep. They, they should have fucking faked left and went right. And they just kept going forward. Yeah. And sticking to that prehistoric model. And they got their asses handed to them. Oh. And are still paying for it dearly. Royally. Yeah. Yeah. So... For sure. and, and, you know, and all of us artists were victims of that, man, if we're going to be completely honest. And adapting to that was really, really strange, you know? Yeah. Almost feels, almost feels like now with Corona, you know? It's just a strange adaption. Yeah, I mean, so so let, let's talk about, you know, the, because that suddenly adaptation was the only means of survival at that moment. You Absolutely, know? man. And... And nobody knew how to adapt. Basically, the music business was in free fall. I, I remember having conversations with people where they felt like the music business was going to die. You know? Oh, yeah. And groups, and groups that didn't have stage shows were dead. Yeah. They, yeah. they died on the vine. And th that was one of the things that we were tripping out on. Like, wow. Because we, we knew that this group had X amount of sales, but had a really shitty uh, stage show. And they just died right in front of us. Yeah, for sure. Well, and, goddamn. So, but, and, and let me ask you this, because as we were adapting in that era, I mean, are Cut and Tuna still doing Ozo at that point? Or is everybody 10 toes down, 100% committed to Jurassic 5? I mean, it, kind of, it always kind of felt like a revolving door, the Ozo thing. So I, I just, I was frustrated at it, but yeah. um, I, I, I knew I couldn't give it too much power. So I, I didn't really spend too much time. I was like, it was frustrating. It was just like, we need to do this, this, and this to prep for this tour or right. these tours coming up. Yeah, but um, I want to say yes. So to answer your question, I think it was always kind of like this revolving door, like, "Hey, we have this tour, we need you to know. We have this tour, we need you cut." Or right. we want you to sit in here and there, but that, that's more of a question for them. Okay, yeah, yeah. Because, because I mean, things were tightening up. Yeah, at, at that moment, you know, towards the end of power and numbers, the industry is changing dramatically. Yeah, yeah. At the same time, you guys have a certain amount of success under your belt. You know, you've got a up. At that point, a probably close to gold first album. Yeah. You know, second album, was it performing comparably sales-wise? It was. It was. And um, it was just, I don't know what I can say about that record, man, other than uh, I think we were doing better tours. I think I think everything, for me, just clicked with that second record. But Power Numbers, man, it just, I think everything was planned out better. So, um, so what kind of tours were you doing on that album? 
compared Every, to yeah. everything. We were doing the UK. We were doing the fucking opening up for. Uh, I, uh, we did the um, fucking. It was that called uh, not Rhythm and Vines. Um, the one with Lauren Hill and the Roots. Uh, fucking um, yeah, smoking. God. Smoking grooves. Yeah. Right, right. That was fucking brilliant. I mean, I don't know, man. It just all made sense. And like, right. We were headlining over the roots in Australia for that run. Like, I mean, it was just shit was dope. Like, we were like, damn, really? We're headlining? You sure? Like, right. And um, you're 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 per, you're doing concerts with the biggest names alongside. Yeah. Sharing the bill in some cases, headlining. Right with some of the largest names yeah hip hop at that point yeah lauren hill cypress hill the roots the fugees yeah and then you're going beyond this is one thing that's always been very special about jurassic five right you're going beyond that pool you're going into areas where you're touring with dave matthews band was that in that era yeah it, it, it was was it was, wasn't my idea but it, it was that era yes okay. and dave only plays stadiums yes you know? so you're, you're you're playing with dave matthews band you're playing with rage against the machine at that time is that true am i do i have that right? i don't think we ever played with rage we might have and i forgot but i don't think we ever played with rage yeah but we played for a lot of fucking crazy people at that time okay. So that that's that's the point that I'm trying to make is suddenly you're no longer this underground hip hop group playing at Unity. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? And this is the thing I brought up with Cut Cut and Charlie. It was like, Y'all motherfuckers had in ears. Yeah. That was made it. Yeah, you in ear monitors. Yeah, I made it. You know what well, I mean? Okay, so like the those first tours we were touring so much the small clubs and uh especially in uh, the UK and in France, they would smoke in the front row and just blow the smoke into the MC's face. <laughs> as I don't know how they did. I had you know tired lungs at the end of the show, and I was in the back DJing. I don't know how the MCs did it. Like I have so much respect for them for being able to put with all put up with all those tours. So right. the next show, they would lose their voice, obviously, because you're kind of like yelling over the beat. You got shitty monitors, and people are you know blowing nicotine in your face all fucking night. So yeah in-ears were a good answer and they controlled everything where it sounded more like the record and we were all just kind of like ah uh, exhaled and we were just now even more comfortable yeah on stage so but, yeah. but the point that i'm trying to make you know is that you were no longer i mean you you had catapulted into the stratosphere as far as underground rap groups were concerned you know what i mean you guys had from my perspective you had achieved a level of success at, at least this is how it was perceived to me and probably the rest of us that suddenly you guys were the model you guys were the for for what one can achieve in our subgenre you know suddenly jurassic five was like man if you can do it we, we could do what j5 did if we just xyz you know like suddenly there's a road map there now yeah where there wasn't one there prior you know yeah. you definitely kicked down all these doors laid the groundwork for the rest of us i mean you know and that was so inspiring you know that was so inspiring for us to see you know wow. now behind the scenes you said there's this revolving door the flip side to that success i'm assuming i'm going to ask you about this mm -hmm. individual members of the group start getting offered solo deals 
because of the success. And like we talked about earlier in the top of this conversation, man, one of the things about being in a group, as you and I both know, is managing expectations, managing mm -hmm. schedules. People have their own obligations. They have yeah. their own. They have families. They have this. They have their own careers separately. Yeah. How did you guys deal with? And and I think I got this right. I think this was that era. How, how did you guys deal with? Because every group goes through this when individual members are popular, you know. Yeah, yeah. Tuna getting offered a deal. Uh, well, I, for me personally, I got kind of happy. Okay. Although I didn't really express that at the time, I was kind of like, "Dope." Yeah. You know, let's see what you can do on your own as a solo artist. You know, straight up. Um, but you know, you know, it definitely causes rifts. I mean, you know, there's, there's people that, you know, they're just like, let's push this brand forward. We don't need any distractions. We need to work really hard on album number three, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. Um, but to answer your question, man, it's just like a lot of different emotions, man. There's a lot of different things that go into it, but, um, Charlie had the heat on him and he, he deserved to have an own, his own album. I've always thought that. Yeah. I don't know. You know, I, I was coming into a point too, where I was like, well, if he does that, well, maybe I can actually put out one of my first side projects too. <laughs> this is around, I think this is around 2004 or five. So, yes. um, you know, so like, you know, it's good to take a break, man. You know, um, Chuck D got a little upset with me when I was in Australia touring by myself. He's like, you know, when we broke up, he put his hand on my shoulder. He's like, from behind too. I didn't even know he was behind me. And I was like, get <laughs> out of me. He's like, look, man, groups should just take a break. They don't break up. And I was just like, fuck, yeah perfectly put you know right so and, and was yeah. it at that point that also after that second album not it, that charlie broke up the group or nothing like that either i'm not trying to say that i'm just saying yeah. you get, people get pulled in different directions and energies happen you know of course and i mean i, I understand all sides too i understand yeah. that it's like i understand the side that because i we've all been in this situation i can say this about quantum as well we've all been in that in the situation where it's like I have this opportunity here. I should take it. And then there's the other side to it. Like we have this group opportunity here. Yeah. We should make the most of it. Yeah. It's and not an easy decision, man. It's not an easy decision because you have so much momentum in the right. group thing. You know, that snowball keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And you're like, man, we got some, we can pretty much knock on almost any door we want right now and get X, Y, and Z. Yeah. And then when you take the power out of that or a piece of the, you know, one of the chemical elements out of that equation, yeah, things get funky quick. Yeah, and I mean, and Charlie wasn't the other, the only one. I mean, oh, meanwhile, no. meanwhile I, that's on his way out the door, right? Oh, yeah. Well, that happened, I think, first. Cut happened first, so okay. Um, that changed the whole chemical compound. Excuse the pun. That <laughs> that changed the whole chemical compound completely. Right. Completely. Yeah. It was now like you know, we're dealing with three legs of the table instead of four. The, the whole thing changed. As you look on, as we're grown men now. Yeah. Being 20 years removed from that situation. Yeah. You know, as you look back on cut leaving and I look and we're going to get to the comeback. So this is a happy ending. <laughs> is there a comeback? You know, well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is ultimately is a ultimate. In my opinion, this is a happy ending. You know, <laughs> so Love happy endings, Tom. <laughs> the sandwich, the sandwich. <laughs> Right. But I mean, you know, <laughs> keep going, man. Uh, I need another drink. Uh, take one. <laughs> me too. 
man. Here we go. <laughs> I'm, I'm down to my last sip. You know, as we have all these this time removed now, cuts up, cut leaves first. You yes. know, as Tuna used to tell me, he was like, he was Ice Cube. Tuna, cut was Cube. You know what I mean? Like the analogy being Cube leaving NWA, right? Right, right, right. Tuna gets a solo deal. Yeah. Right. Everybody starts getting these kind of solo aspirations. It sounded like not everybody, but yeah, you know, it, it definitely triggered things within the band, right? Within the group. As you look back on this, you, you know, cut leaving, could it have been avoided? Oh, I don't know. I think that'd be a question for him as well. I, I you know, I always thought he could have done both easily. Yeah. But, you know, cut creates much different than I do. Like, I, I need constant touching and feeling of the keys. I need to constantly be around my drum machine, around my turntables. Yeah. I need to just do it because I want to do it. I need to feel it. Cut you won't see him touch it for a while then all of a sudden all this shit comes pouring out of him you know or or he'll just wait like he always you know he always jokes around uh, about his creative work ethic he's like well don't ever wait 10 10 years between albums you know he always talks like this you know so i don't know tom i mean i think if if he if if he changes work ethic yeah it could have been avoided or whatever but i think cuts cut you know everybody works at their own pace you know so i'm not really quite sure because you do have very different production styles. He's kind of like, yeah. I'm going to make an album or a song when it hits me, when I feel right. the spirit, right? That's right. New is like, put, Rudiments. The, put it in yeah. front of me, let's go to work. Yeah. You know, whatever. Yeah. I, I treat it like, like how I was trained to play drums, like rudiments. Like, if I'm uninspired, I'll just do bop, 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 super simple, dumb, like baby scratch, woo, 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 you know, super simple stuff until I'm like, hey, I got an idea for something. I didn't, you know, I stopped being the tin man and I start becoming loosened up and I'm like, okay, I'm in a groove now. That's that's how I, yeah. you know, we, we create differently. Yes, you have very different production styles. So yeah. I could see how, I don't know, I don't know, I'm, I'm making assumptions here, but I could see how that grind of what you said when I kills, like we need to be doing more, we need to be creating more. We that's need right. Which is probably true at that yeah. time. You oh, know. absolutely, man. Absolutely. Yeah. And if you're, and meanwhile, Cut's getting offered a solo deal. That's right. Right. So I could see how with his production style and, and just sort of his artistic take on things, those situations could feel overwhelming. For oh, yeah. Yeah. You know? yeah. Especially, yeah. Yeah. For a guy like Cut, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. He, 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 he expressed it to me years later, too. It was a lot. What did he say? What was that kind of? Like. Well, you know, he was just like he was just saying he didn't think he could do both, mm -hmm. basically. You know, he was like, "It's a lot." Yeah. And look, you know, look, man, like I knew it was a lot for him at the time. You know, yeah. I was bent out of shape, but I knew it was a lot for him. So you, you, you're over here trying to like reimagine your stage show as just one guy on a group on stage and and do an album and all that. You know, whatever. You know, so you know, everybody creates differently. Everybody has their own obstacles. So. I, you know, I had to give him 50 feet. Yeah. So, so as Cut is making his departure, and as sort of the chem, it changes, like you said, no pun intended, the chemistry of the of the band. You know, yeah. the creative DNA is sort of disrupted there, right? At least momentarily, right? Yes, for sure. How do you adjust for that? How did you find yourself adjusting? Uh, I just kind of took a page from my from my mother's playbook, you know. My mother came here when she was 15 from Iran, and she fucking hustled. 
and she's my biggest um, inspiration in life. She's my hero. She's anytime I'm feeling weak or fucking acting like a little bitch about what oh, I can't do this, this, and this. I think about my mom's, and I'm like, man, she did right. all the shit, all the shit without any help of any punk ass man. Yeah, and raised me and my sister like I think pretty fucking well, and learned the fucking language. Thank you, goddammit. it. Immigrant hustle. Immigrant baby. Thank Immigrant you. hustle. And I was Thank just you. like, man. So, yeah. you know, the group was at this point really uh, all of the MCs were pushing much harder for uh, outside producers while Cut left. And I guess a sound that geared more towards the urban audience where I was just like, I don't know what any of that means. I'm just going to turn in the best beats that I possibly can. Interesting. Um, Okay. And, yeah. and that's where I, that's where I fell in line with my mom, and that's where I just took I, I pulled from her energy, and I talked to her a lot about it. So I was just like, she's like, just do you, do the best you can. No one can ever replicate you. Right. That's it. And I was like, fuck that. You're right. You're right. I'm gonna go in and um, just be the best team player I could. And it's funny, man. I had a, a meeting with uh, uh, Pandora like about six months ago. And I was like, you know, I have a friend that worked over there. And I was like, hey, you know, what's the biggest streaming song on uh, Pandora for J5? And, uh, and, they, and they go, do you know what it is? I'm like, no, that's what I'm asking you. They're like, they're like take a guess. I said, um, what's Golden Concrete Schoolyard? They're like, no. And then I started naming like improvise and other things down the line, like, no. I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? And it was the song I did on the last album called Canto de Asana, which is my cover of uh, a brazilian song and and to this day is still one of my favorite productions that i've ever done yeah and it's the highest streaming song on pandora for j5 and i was like the fuck so th i mean you know power numbers was a slow detonation but feedback was really a slow detonation in those hidden songs okay uh, that one being the prime suspect right okay so as we're going into feedback what what year did you guys start working on that what year was that Fuck, I don't know, T. Um, that was shit. You got me, bro. I think that's like 2005. Yes, and and this, yeah. this is what would be the last Jurassic Five album? Yeah, yeah. For for a major label and otherwise. Yeah, I'm right. glad it was too. I'm I'm very happy it was. Did you feel that way going into that? Did you sense that this was going to be the case going into the production of that album? No, I knew about halfway through listening to that album that it would be the last album. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about that. Why? Yeah. What made you feel that way? I felt like the outside production made no sense. Okay. In you know, at, at the end of the day, if you, if everyone's going to show up to a mural and add a piece of the mosaic to it, it's yeah. got to make sense. It's like one dude can't be painting crayon and the next dude fucking, you know, full-blown oil paints and fucking yeah. spray paint and shit. Like, it, it's got to it's gotta make sense. My feeling on that album, you know, as a J5 fan, as a listener was that it definitely had some strong joints yeah you know the ones i liked i really liked yeah for sure that what's golden was on that album right no it was on the album prior it was, oh that's right on. okay yeah. okay that was the album that had red hot the third album was the, yeah. was dave matthews collab right right okay so so this, this was my feeling on that album right i definitely felt like yes the, the sort of the chemistry had been felt a little disrupted right you know? i knew that obviously cut was not a part of it tuna seemed like he was not a part of it in the same way right 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 it and and i say this as because i love you guys you know what i mean I'm, yeah we 
and this is peer to peer that I'm saying this, you yeah. know, I felt like it, it felt like the end to me too. Yeah. I guess it felt like the end to me. Yeah. And, and I felt like there were certain things that were being reached for, you yeah. know, like, like the Dave Matthews collab. Yes. Yeah. You know, that, that felt like an industry, a strategic industry move to me, you know? Right. right. And it was. Yeah. And it was. It, it, it didn't come from a pure place. And I don't really, you know, I've been saying this the whole interview, I don't really create to fulfill a quota or a deadline. I'm, I'm doing it because I really enjoy sharing a message or a transition or a... Um, the art base baseline or a feel or an emotion being fucking turned and so it, it, it halfway through i'm like yeah this some of this outside production just isn't making sense i really liked gotta understand a lot though that was a dope point that was that, that, that contributed for sure and i like exiles yeah. production as well yeah um but there's some of the other stuff it just didn't it didn't it didn't make sense yeah that's the only way i can put it and, and you knew this halfway through the complete yeah. Or maybe seventy percent, you know, in that in that kind of middle to. Did 70%. you did you voice this within the group? Did everybody feel the same way? Where where? Because at this point, well, my problem is I would voice too much, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a producer. I'm the psychologist. I'm the best friend. I'm the enemy. I'm the everything yeah. when it comes to the studio. So you got to be honest, you know. Yeah. I, I literally have a sign over my studio door right here to the left that just says "Truth," you know. I mean, it's just like that's the, that's like the most important thing that has to happen in a studio. Yeah. If you can't be truthful in a studio, you're you're not contributing to art. You're just going to be another fucking pile of shit on the ground. How was that truth received? Um, not with open arms, you know. And 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 other people express it in other ways. Yeah, you know, people's reality is people re is people's reality. You know, it just uh, perception is a trip, right? So, uh, my perception isn't the same. And hey, look. Also, man, I've been wrong a gazillion fucking times. Don't, I'm, I'm not standing on any fucking podium here by any means. I've been wrong a lot of times and a shitload of times in the group. A lot of times. I didn't want to sign an Interscope. And that was like Soup was really pushing. Right. And then finally he just said, no, we need a video. Yes. I was like, da ding you're right, I'm wrong. You know, yes. It was time for us to move to the next level. We couldn't afford it. Videos were like 200K at that time. Crazy. So, so you know what I'm saying? Just kind of put things in perspective here. But um, yeah, man, you know, um, I think people liked J5 because of the synergy and that mosaic that was put together in this way that they didn't expect. And it, it all had the same uh, texture that was real. You can touch and you can feel it, you know? Yes. So um, I think once it started to move in different directions, it, it was tougher to feel, you know? Feeling is everything about music. And how did you guys, once it came out, how did you gauge the audience response? I don't remember. I think I blocked it out. Really? Yeah, I, I don't. I don't really remember. I remember doing the tours. Yeah. And something really beautiful came out of it for me, solo wise, for me as a person as Newmark, but yeah. as a group, it, I was kind of numb. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, I, I think for us as fans, shortly thereafter, we got the word J Five had broken up. Yeah. You no. Know? And for us as fans, it was a sad fucking day, man. You know, I can't say I didn't understand, though. Yeah. But um, I, I just knew from being your friends and, and sort of being um, in the loop that I knew that it was coming apart. Yeah. It was just sad to see because I loved the music. But I understood, <laughs> you know, I, I completely understood. Yeah. But what it did do... In your case, 
from my point of view, it gave you the opportunity to really go the fuck out in the world and become DJ Newmark. Yeah, it, it was like, in a strange fucking way, the best thing that happened to me is it was crazy. Because I was always the one behind my hat in the back that was like, don't mind me, I'm just trying yeah. to get this thing off the ground. Like the yeah. coach in a weird fucking way, like, yes. but, but like, like, I'm not trying to take any credit for like the business side of it or any of that. Like I, we talked about that earlier in the interview. Yeah. I just wanted the airplane to get off the ground. That's it. Right. And I didn't do my first solo anything till 2004 or five with blend crafters. Right. But it was when the group was like, we've had enough. And I was like the last person to know too. Mm. <laughs> I was like, Oh shit. Like, yeah. I don't want to be a solo artist. I never, I've always wanted to just pass the baton to somebody because I have a lot, I'm an idea guy. Right. And I just want to say, this fits you, this will fit you. Take this baton, Tuna, you know? And that's where the, the, the toy set was born because I used to do a small portion of the toy set on stage with J5 as the DJ solo. Yeah. And then I was just like, well, fuck, I don't got anybody on stage with me. What if I just filled the whole entire stage with children's musical toys and just explore? And, and then the gears just, haven't really stopped turning since i guess right. i have no choice tom <laughs> let's talk about i mean but let's talk about this because this is very important because i think a lot of people you know they don't know newmark up until this point yeah or it's, it's a very true statement you know they don't know him personally up until this point they don't know clearly what his voice was in the group yeah. They don't know Newmark's artistic voice individually yeah. necessarily, you know? And um, I, I really saw you in that period, whether you say it was you were forced to, you know, really spread your wings there, you know? I mean, you're suddenly DJing all over the fucking place, right? Yeah. And still are. A lot of it, it was just me saying yes, Tom. Yeah. Because before that, I was saying no all the time because I, I really just wanted the group to be platinum or yeah. at whatever buggy fucking idea I had in my head at the time right. as far as where, where I thought we should be or where we were expected to be at, you know? Yeah. So I was now just saying, okay, yeah, sure, I'll play that club. Yeah, whatever. I'll see what we can do. And then it just opened up my brain in a completely different way. Yeah. And, and I really respect that, man. I really respect guys that come out of big situations where, you know, they're sort of the quiet killer in the band. You know what I mean? Which is kind of how I always thought about you. Well, and it's a lot. You know what I mean? And they come out of that situation and they really get the chance to spread their wings and they fucking deliver. And I, I that's that's how I've always thought about you. And it's, you know, he's not the guy that, like I said before at the top, he's not the guy that's going to toot his own horn. He's not the guy that is at the bar drinking with the fans. You know, he's the guy that's fucking making the music. I yeah. wish I was drinking at the bar with the fans. Fuck, man. <laughs> But, but this is my point, man. And then, you know, you all go your separate ways for a time. And Newmark, in my opinion, finds his voice. You know, he's out there. He finds his feet, you know, as a solo artist. Yeah. What conversations brought you back to the table as a group? Uh, for like a reunion tour, you mean? Yeah. Um, unfortunately, money. <laughs> I love it. The honesty. I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, like, I'm not, I don't want to like people who are watching this i don't want them to look man we're at a stage right now with music and the world and covid and the bullshit like people they want they want to know what's up you know they they don't want to fucking hear another artist like feed them some bullshit like and it's not like you didn't build it to begin with you know what i mean so 
Yeah, I mean, it wasn't like we were doing the fucking Yaya tour with the doo-doo boys and shit. Like, we are we <laughs> fucking like, you know, okay, yeah, let's do another run, you know? Let's do another run, you know? I mean, money was fucking proper, so let's do another run. And, and might I add, it was bigger than ever when you came back. It was pretty insane. Yeah, I, I can't front on that. Yeah. yeah. How did that make you feel? Crazy. That Coachella show was fucking insanity. That was like insanity because we fucked up that fucking main stage. I guess we played the second to the biggest stage at, I don't know what the fuck they got going on over there, but the, um, I forget who was headlining that day. Oh, the um, Stone Roses. Mm. And we just annihilated that show where people just stayed on our stage and they had to push their show back and all that. And um, I had been creating this gigantic five foot by five foot turntable for like, fuck, I think four or five months, something like that. I remember that. And um, it was the first time it was going to be used on stage. And uh, we were, we practiced, we were feeling good. We all missed each other. And about five minutes before we went on stage, um, one of our engineers dropped Cut's portable turntable and the needle splattered into millions of little pieces. And we're like, oh, fuck. <laughs> so, like, we've been working on this big turntable for months. And yeah. then out of nowhere, like Paul McCartney shows up. And I'm like, fuck, Paul McCartney, like my fucking Gemini twin. Like, do I take a picture with him or do I help cut out with this so I go and take a picture with Paul McCartney? Paul McCartney from the Beatles show yeah. to a J5 reunion gig. Backstage, bro. And I take a picture with him and I was like, man, you're my Gemini brother. And he just winks at me. I'm like, fuck, man. Jesus, this guy's a fucking G. It was, it was crazy. And then Z Trip shows up out of nowhere and helps tape cuts turntable together but we don't know if it's going to actually work on stage because we weren't allowed a, a sound check at that time because we we're already being rolled out on stage so he's like <laughs> fucking scotch taping a fucking professional needle to a portable turntable fucking as it's being rolled out yeah and i'm fucking sweating fucking monumental bullets bro because I, I had been working on this technology that's my role in the group man you know that yeah like my role in the group is the, the fucking zany ideas like yes. okay, what are we gonna do for the for the dj crazy toy you know so we get out on stage and fucking it works and it was loud as fuck i almost swallowed my nuts it was like fucking crazy man i i, I all it was the loudest sound i've ever heard on stage i just looked at cut like are you kidding me right now man like yeah so and, and we, that, we figured it out it was a messy performance but we figured it out and then that big turntable and that performance really got dialed in as we were on tour so right man and i mean it, it was it was so huge it was so huge because and and just the fact that paul mccartney shows up <laughs> you're selling you're selling more tickets than ever more tickets than you ever had when the album was gold when you were on interscope yeah and again you teach is us that what happened you, is, is that what happened to our sales i didn't know that shit well you teach us all another lesson man is the wow. legacy you know, you, you teach us all another lesson here is that those emotions that those albums and those songs and those shows conveyed and, and how the, those works reg resonated with the fans, that shit doesn't go away. Yeah. Jurassic Five is no less important just because you didn't make albums for a few years. Yeah. You know, none of us when we think of our favorite groups and bands, none of us can just turn that off. It's something that yeah. you for the rest of your life, 
you know and i think that's that's really important and and um for us to understand as artists also because here you are coming back 10 years later were all these sort of relationship issues was it water under the bridge at that point did it had it all washed up on the beach i mean were you able to put all that behind you i think a good portion of it was yeah. For me, anyway, I don't. I really don't like holding grudges, man. Like I, you know, a lot of the stuff that's personal belongs in personal world. I just really want to like go in and cre and create something that's like meaningful, you know. Yeah. And do something that's fun where we can sustain it on the road or sustain it in the studio and have it uh, live on wax or you know digitally now. Right. So for me, I was just like, yeah, let's just get to the finish line. Let's let's figure out a fun way to get to the finish line and do something creative on stage that hasn't been seen ever. You know, and, and I, I think we did a pretty decent job of doing that. I was pretty happy with what yeah. that looked like. Yeah, I, I, I was, I for one as a fan, I was ecstatic. You know, it was inspiring for me as one of your peers to see, oh, we can do what the rock bands do. We can, right. we can come back 10 years later. Right. People don't forget. See, this is a, this is what I mean when I say that you guys have gone into uncharted territory because that model hadn't been played out yet for hip hop bands, particularly West Coast underground hip hop bands. You know, yeah. that cycle had yet to be played out, but you guys did that. You know what I mean? And um, it, it, it's it was such an amazing moment for me to see that happen, you know, just as a fan and as a peer and as your friend, you know, it was just it was really inspiring and great to see, man. And, and I think it was just one of many moments that you guys have created individually, you know, as DJ Newmark, as a as a as a DJ and as a producer, but also as a part of this really important band, this really important group. Yeah, well, thank you, man. Yeah, and um, I, I hate to I hate to wrap it up, man, because you and I can talk about yeah everything anytime, brother. Like I said earlier in this week, I spent the whole day talking to all my homies on the phone. I was like, this is the best week of COVID ever. <laughs> yeah, I like hearing voices. I'm audio, man. I do all this texting and digital shit. I yeah. just don't like the fact that everything's been rendered down to a digital experience. Like yes, well, it's like, I, I, fuck. But, like I need to hear some fucking human shit. Yeah, it, 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 really, it really does mean everything right now, you know, yeah. and, I, and I think that that's one of the reasons why these conversations, these mobile homies conversations have been received so well. It's because when the fuck have we ever been able to sit down and just chop it up? You know what yeah, I mean? Man. Yeah, man. And look, all the artists out there that are, you know, listening or see this later or whatever, we got nothing but respect for you, man. And you, you, you just got to keep on chipping away at it and having fun and continue to learn. For sure. You'll, ne you'll never be a master, so just get that out of your head. You're yep. always going to learn. Yeah. The music maze is just endless and endless and endless, and it'll keep fucking leading you in some crazy-ass directions, so don't worry about being a master of it. Just fucking have fun. Hey, man. That's it. My guy. Yes, T. Newmark from Jurassic 5. We'll drink something good after this, T. Hopefully when this shit ends, man, drinks are on me, brother. Let's make some music, too, man. Yes, sir. Anytime, man. Okay. I love you, my man. Take care of yourself. Take care. Oh, hey, visit my band camp, people. I put a new mix out today from DJ Scratch's page. Hey! Yeah, he had me on as a guest, so visit my band camp. Very DJ cool. Newmark. DJ Newmark, band camp. Okay, my man. Take care of yourself, man. It's good to One see love. you. love. Good seeing you, Tom. Be safe. Likewise. All right, now. 
Yo, thank you for listening to Mobile Homies. Make sure you subscribe and hit me with a five-star review on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you catch your podcasts. For more content, hit up lyricsborn.com. Love y'all. Uh.